You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Full house today. Mark, Towner, Caitlin, Patrick, we're all here. We will be doing one more podcast before our August break and um, uh, next week, uh, but we're, we're here today and few topics for today. Um, let's start here. Everybody always says it's the economy, stupid. I think James Carville is the one that actually coined the phrase. Looking ahead to the midterms, Patrick, is it the economy, stupid? And by the way, what economy are we even talking about? Because normally, I mean, we begin every meeting talking about jobs and people have jobs. So what are what are we even talking about as we turn the corner toward the midterms? Yeah, I think I think this is where both parties compete for a narrative on what the current vision of the American economy is. And it sure seems like from public polling that the Republicans are are winning uh, that messaging battle very clearly. You're right. I mean, you can paint a picture of the economy one way, which is uh, anyone in America can get a job right now, a good paying job, uh, which is incredible. I mean, if you had told the Obama administration, you could say that in the 2010 midterms, they would have been thrilled. Um, gas prices are coming down from their summer highs. There was reports out this morning on all the financial networks that they should be below $4 uh, right around Labor Day, uh, maybe even a little bit before that. Um, inflation is still uh, prevalent, but there seems to be some resetting in certain areas of the market. And then the recession, everyone, it's kind of like, you know, uh, like, we don't talk about Bruno kind of thing. Like no one wants to, we, we don't know if we're in it. We think we might be, uh, we don't know how deep it's going to be, but I don't think it's, it's having uh, the huge impact yet uh, that, you know, I think would make a lot of us really nervous. So you can lay out a narrative if you think about, uh, and then you talk about COVID, which has to factor into the economy. People are getting back to normal. Uh, people are going out again. People are traveling again. Even with uh, this new variant, I think the fact that young children are able to get vaccinated, people are just accepting that COVID is a part of our lives and they're choosing to live and be a part of you know, normal life in the economy again. So there's a way for the Biden administration to paint, you know, not a rosy picture, but at least a, a comeback story kind of picture. Uh, but it seems like they are just caught up in a very negative narrative about inflation, uh, still gas prices, um, and just feeling like they can't get out from under themselves on the messaging. And that's where I think Republicans are, are winning that war uh, as we look ahead to the midterms. Caitlin, what, what do you think on this question? I think it's a tale of two realities. I think if you are retired or on a fixed income and you're now paying two, three times for groceries or for gas or for utilities or for rent or for other basics that we buy every day, um, it's a it's a struggle and it's a challenge. And when we you know talk to members of Congress from all around the country outside of the big cities and urban centers that are you know we were talking about real America earlier, we're hearing that this is the number one issue that there it's not. Roe versus Wade being overturned. It's not, um, 
you know, some of the more social issues that have been dominating the headlines. It's not even the January 6th commission hearings, which obviously have been been really big and we've been talking about, but it's it's their it's the kitchen table issues, it's paycheck issues, it's the fact that people are struggling to get by. It's the fact that the consumer price index rose over 9% in June. And it's the fact that people are struggling across this country. It's a great point about the divergence between people that are retired and living on a fixed income versus those that can go out into the market, older Americans versus those that can go out into into the market and and get a job and a job that pays better than it did five years ago, Mark. It's, it's a very good point. Very good point. I, I think, Howard, to that point, though, it, this is a, a little bit more about attitude than, than analysis. Uh, I, I think just to back up a, a step, you've heard me say it before here, it, it's all about trend lines. It's all about expectations. And to a great degree, as Patrick said, trend lines, expectations are driven by the narrative and the storytelling. I think a lot of Americans are afraid that the economy is going to get worse. A lot of Americans are of the attitude, notwithstanding the analysis of the job numbers and whatever else, they were just going the wrong way. And when you're worried we're going the wrong way, you want to throw the bums out and and try the other guys. Yeah. And and I think that is what is happening much more. You you have the uh, perspective of uh, an economist, not surprisingly, given your father's career. But it's not about economic analysis. It's about an, an attitudinal concern. That, that things are bad and getting worse, that the wheels are coming off. Yeah, but the president has a role to play in shaping how people feel. And for the life of me, I don't know why this administration, I mean, things are costing more. Inflation is a huge problem and it's destabilizing, but people can find gainful employment. and. That's traditionally what this country has associated with the economy. Um, that's what they, that's what people have associated with the economy, Towner. And why isn't Biden out there telling people that things are better than they are? Like, I think part of it is just the message stinks. I, I partially agree with everything everybody has said, uh, in, in, but parts of those things. I mean, I spent... See, I spent a good. That's quite a time. statement, Towner. Yeah, I, I spent the a good professor deal of time. is now going to synthesize. Right. Yeah. 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 You now partially agree really with is. everything everybody has had to say. Yeah. I'm saying that in my next meeting. Uh, I spent a good deal of time in the mid 2000s on Capitol Hill writing press releases about how awesome the economy was when nobody else in America believed it. Uh, partially because the unemployment rate was below four percent. Uh, partially because the, you know the foundational numbers of the economy were strong, and we would put that out. I've seen you know White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain tweeting numbers over and over again, and that's all well and good. But the reality of the situation is, I've been through in my adult life a housing bubble bursting. I've been through a tech bubble bursting. We are currently going through both at the same time. And the only thing that's saving our bacon right now is the fact that people didn't spend a lot of money in 2020 and 2021, and now they want to spend freely. The federal government also spent freely, 
in 21. And now that's getting into the pipeline. And so as soon as we start losing that, that free cash, and I guarantee you, it's going to be before the end of, of the year, we're going to start, everybody's going to start belt tightening uh, as a result. Right now, inflation doesn't feel as bad for folks. They, it's a talking point, not a, not a thing that they're feeling in middle America, uh, because they are in middle class America, because they're free spending extra money they had from during the pandemic. But I guarantee you, as soon as that as that runs out, uh, both in the governmental system and in people's pocketbooks, that's when the inflation is going to going to really hit home. Yeah, and look, everything is forward looking. I mean, the stock market is most definitely forward looking, and the market has been down, and that is telling us that things that we shouldn't feel so good. Notwithstanding that, I think a better messenger would make people feel better about where we are today than than Joe Biden is able to do. I don't think there's anyone who speaks for this administration. He's not an effective messenger. His vice president is by design invisible. Um, Janet Yellen. Yeah. We're in electoral terms and in, in political terms, again, not economic, but political terms. We're in a phase which you've often characterized as candidates matter. You look at certain races. Look, I cite Pennsylvania because that's what I know about. You know, in Pennsylvania is the the state that Caitlin was describing. Pennsylvania is an older state. Pennsylvania has a lot of people on fixed incomes who are very worried about uh, the economy and and inflation and what they're paying. And yet in our Senate race and in our governor's race, we have candidates mattering. And if the polling's to be believed, and that's a huge if, uh, the better candidate is overcoming the economic headwinds and the failure of the administration in Washington to tell the story because they're they're simply out uh, campaigning the other guy. It's it, that's it that's an interesting choice of phrase given the fact that the democratic candidate for senate isn't out campaigning Mark. Just got out of a hospital. Correct. You're you're a day behind the news. He's public, public appearance yesterday, not one but two. Two side, two Fetterman sightings last night at uh, at events in the Philadelphia area. There would have been a third if the president uh, hadn't tested positive. Man, this is like a Franklin Roosevelt situation, isn't it? You just yeah. don't want the press to talk about it. <laughs> Howard, your question on the messaging, though, and it, it was something Mark said earlier on the podcast. I mean, listen. You always want the most effective messenger possible, but there's no shortage of very talented people in the White House who have made a professional living communicating complicated ideas to the American public. I, I think the problem is that they are hesitant to tell an overly positive story when they believe that the next chapter is not gonna be very good. And they're looking at an interest rate hike coming. They think unemployment's gonna go up. Uh, and they are worried about declaring victory, mission accomplished, uh, and then looking completely out of touch when things get worse. And I, I actually sympathize with, it's really easy for everyone on the outside to be like, 
the White House is a bunch of idiots. The president know, doesn't know how to talk about what's I mean, I, I think about it all the time. I don't know what the heck I would say. It's really, really a, a political messaging challenge for them to make the country feel like we've gotten out of the worst of the pandemic. There are some economic challenges, but we're going to get through it together. It's it's not it, it's easier said than done. Listen, I hear you. And you and I have been in those jobs in the executive branch. Um, but and 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 maybe it's that it's a it's a complicated message too. It's not an easy message to deliver. I just think, look, I want him to succeed. I think no matter what where we are politically, we want the country to be doing well. At least the people on this podcast do. Um, and I want him to succeed. I think they could be doing a better job of defending their record than they are I, it, across yeah. all yeah. issues. Agreed. I don't think they do a good job. This, th There are sophisticated, experienced people in there, but there, there are also this administration is populated with academics and people who've been in government and um, frankly, not a big perspective. And it's a problem, and I think they could be doing a better job with their messaging. In, in fairness, I have never seen anybody talk about message the economy better than Donald Trump. He picked a number, and that number was the stock market, which happened to be going up. And people can see that every day on the scroll or on the front page of the website that they're on or something like that. And he hammered it over and over and over again. I mean, he would he would tweet the stock market number going up every day, you know, and he found that metric that was increasing, whereas maybe everything was decreasing at the same time, but the stock market was still going up and he got out there and he messaged it and he drilled it into people's brains. So they thought markets up today, economy's great, family's good. I mean, it gets back to Howard, your original question, right? Is the what what economy are we even talking about? In the 90s, people felt good because of the stock market, also because of deficit reduction leading to surpluses. We saw unemployment go down after the Great Recession. That was the metric that everyone focused on. So it is tricky, right? There's different indicators, and it's hard to know what the public thinks is the most important one at any given time. Well, you have to shape it. You have to shape yeah. it. And before yeah. before your time, Patrick, in the 80s, uh, Ronald Reagan declared mourning again in America in the middle of a recession. Right. It, it, it's it, it, it candidates matter. And Reagan was the great communicator and, and notwithstanding the facts, convinced the country that we were going in the right direction. Again, trend lines. We no. were going in the right direction. Um Yes, I, I'm going to have to. Yeah, I, I agree partially with everything Tanner said. Yeah, Mark, one thing I was going to mention, too, I had breakfast this week with a very prominent, well-known Democratic senator who said he's been advising the White House on messaging that, you know, not mourning in America, um, but a great American comeback story, given who Joe Biden is. Everything in that guy's life yeah. is bouncing back from adversity. And there is a narrative that will probably begin post midterms, assuming he is going to run for election, that is all about this is the beginning of our comeback. 
and he's going to weave it in with his own life. And I, I think that could be an effective message, depending on some of the other economic indicators we talked about. So switching gears to the last president, uh, Towner, you brought him up. Well, last the one night, positive thing I've said about him. Say you were right. about the man, but the economy was good. <laughs> yeah, but Caitlin, well, I would, I would argue 2020. Yeah, I would argue that <laughs> the inflation we're experiencing today, Biden owns it because he's currently the president, but it stems from the excessive rescue packages that were put together under Trump and the Congress that existed at the time. And so I blame Trump and and Congress for going overboard. Uh, you know, that Karen's last act, American Rescue Plan. Yeah, Howard, American Rescue Plan. That, that was, yes, that, that, was, that was Biden, all. but that was the last <laughs> package of many. That was Howard, the and, the, and the Fed for responding too slowly. Would you add that as a factor if, too? I mean, I listened to Larry Summers did a big interview yesterday well, and that he was leaning in really hard on that. Yeah, um, probably. It's hard. Look, it's hard to predict. Um, it's hard to time these things. And there's this question about whether the Fed can ever achieve a so-called soft landing um, where we kind of back out of an overheated economy without putting the country into recession. And it's really never, it really never happens. It probably isn't going to happen here. Um, timing is everything. It's it's hard. Well, and if Democrats had their way in Congress, there would have been like three more COVID relief packages, Howard. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. I just think, as usual, both parties own it. There was, so, you know, but thinking about that history, I mean, there was the CARES Act. And by the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, almost all of the CARES Act money was out because it was emergency pandemic spending for the most part. There was still some money floating around getting out of the federal government, but HHS had cleared all their dollars, um, housing had cleared all its dollars, et cetera, et cetera. The December 2020 package happened, which was just shy of a trillion dollars in pandemic spending that had not yet cleared into the system. Uh, quite frankly, they're still spending some of that money. They just put out a no vote today or uh, last week, I should say, uh, on on a billion dollars of that trillion dollars that was spent in December 2020 at Treasury. And so that money hadn't cleared through the system. And so then Biden comes in and three months later, we have American Rescue Plan, which is another, what was it, trillion and a half, something in that neighborhood. I don't remember anymore. Those numbers were so big. Yeah. But they hadn't waited till the December 2020 money had cleared. So now we start getting the backlog in the federal system of the dollars that are that are being allocated to agencies and they haven't gotten out the previous dollars. And then you get into infrastructure and now they're trying to get that out. So, you know, it's what happened was, you know, a decent lead time. Everybody wanted a quicker pandemic stimulus between the CARES Act and the December 2020 package. Uh, but we didn't get it. And by yeah. negotiation, we finally got the trillion at the end of 2020, but it actually created a length of time where money could be spent. And then in 21, we just piled all this money on top of each other. Yeah. I mean, the the operative word there is everybody. I think everybody owns this and both parties own it. And, you know, that's why we're in the position we're in. I just think if you look at the back end, if you look at ARPA, the American Rescue Plan, 
and the infrastructure bill. Both parties certainly own the infrastructure bill. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, but that money isn't 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 going out the door. I mean, some of it is going out the door now, but that isn't isn't the cause of inflation. And there's a difference between COVID relief packages, which Caitlin referenced, which there is debate about how much we needed and if any, how much we still need, and things that there's bipartisan, things that while they may be very expensive, there's pretty broad agreement that we need. Uh, I mean, our infrastructure is crumbling all over America. Tanner, how much does the CHIPS Plus bill cost that we're working on right Uh, now? About $78 billion, I think, was the CBS. Yeah, I mean, it's not nothing, but that, I can't think of a more critical piece of legislation. I mean, we are so far behind on this, it's still going to take, what, three to five years to catch up. And what happens if China invades Taiwan in the meantime? We would be completely screwed. So, like, we have to do that. It's not an option. Short-term versus long-term. And, you know, the, um, I I think... too much money was put out through the through the small business channel with blinders on as to need. Um, and I think that's one of the big mistakes that that were that was made. Um, I, I really do. I think there are in in 0809 with um, TARP and then with um, ARRA, there was People say we didn't do enough. Well, this time we did too much. Um, there's a balance, and I, I just think we went overboard. And and both parties own it, and that's the cause. But let's shift gears and talk about um, a column that appeared in the New York Times in the last couple of weeks. It's David Brooks. I, I sent it around. David Brooks's column on what the kind of next presidential candidate should look like. And but but the fundamental gist of the article is people are have just had it with American politics, with with the parties that and that the system is fundamentally broken, that people don't trust the parties. They don't trust government. There are many, many more people who consider themselves independents. And Towner, are we broken beyond repair that's i mean it's a very bleak column very good column but a very bleak and depressing column um but are we are we broken beyond repair no because we're not a fixed system and i think that's the critical we haven't had a new political party in this in this country for a long time but you know quite frankly you know trump remade blue-collar workers into Republicans. And those blue-collar workers would probably be Democrats again in the next election cycle. We go, it's cyclical in nature. We have we have high points of 20% independent votes in, pres- in presidential and midterm elections. We have low points of like 5% independent votes in midterm elections. And these things go in waves, they go in cycles. And right now, I can't tell you really exactly what the voting electorate is for either party. Well, that that's kind of his point is everything's out of whack and that's dangerous. I mean, we've got an establishment progressive party and an anti-establishment conservative party is what he says. That makes no sense. It makes no logical sense, Mark. And um, what's your what's your take? Are we broken? Yes. Are we broken beyond repair to be determined it is the answer. You know, if. If you do this long enough, I've done it longer than 
than the rest of you. I've lived through no a comment, Mark. <laughs> I have lived through several uh, permanent, irreversible, uh, fundamental realignments of the American mm-hmm. political system. And we're due for another one. And then after that, there'll be there'll be another one when the wheel comes around. It it, it, it it's a work in progress still. I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than David Brooks, maybe not as optimistic as Professor French, but but we are most fun, we are most definitely at risk. This is broken. And something has to happen next to bring it back uh, into alignment. I I keep uh, pounding on on a drum that uh, nobody else is listening to. We we need more participation in the political process. And the greatest risk that we have now is that we are being driven to to less independence participating. Well, well, Caitlin, less- isn't that the problem? You've got a historically significant number of people who think that the country is on the wrong track. You've got Donald Trump and Joe Biden, the last two presidents, are two of the least popular political figures in in modern history, um, both with exceedingly high disapproval ratings. But isn't, you know, what, 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 where does that land? Like, can we get more participation, as Mark is saying, because people have just kind of had it? Look, I'm not near as pessimistic as I think a lot of you all are this morning on on, on the briefing. I think we just got out of a once in a lifetime two year pandemic. We got to just pause, give ourselves some grace. We had a lot of turmoil over the past couple of years, but the system fundamentally worked. January 6th, that was a very scary moment in history. But democracy and our systems and our institutions, they were tested, sure, but it held. And if you look at what's going on around the world right now, I sure as hell would rather be here in the United States of America with our somewhat dysfunctional you know, government than anywhere else in the world. And we're going to get through this, just like there was you know, moments of turmoil, as Mark was referencing, and in and, and his time in the 70s, we're, we're going to be all right. I think everyone needs to take a breath. We literally just got out of a global pandemic that we all, you know, we weathered the storm and, and, and we're here and we're all employed and, you know, yes, costs are going up, but, but everyone needs to take a breath. Patrick, opinion. you know, one of the things that uh, irks me, this is personal autobiographical is I was recently asked by one of our least avid listeners to this podcast, Mark's wife, Sue Ellen, are you a Democrat? I don't like, I don't like having to identify myself as one thing or another. Now I get to play both sides of the fence on behalf of our clients all day, every day, because I actually worked for both sides. Uh, for Obama and Bush, but I don't like having to be one thing or another. Why do I need to declare an allegiance to one of these parties? That's how I feel. Now, I'm not saying that the way I feel about my politics is representative of the average American, but on the other hand, maybe it is. Like, I don't want to be typecast. 
I hear you. you I live in a, I live in a two baseball team city. I get, I get what you're saying. I mean, it's (laughs) (laughs) no, it's true. I I actually think you're right. I think this is a, I think there are millions of Americans who feel the same way. Um, And part of that is, you know, inside the beltway and we can discuss this on the beltway briefing, your party affiliation is like, you know, it's just way more important because Washington is where the nation's business is conducted and the whole thing is set up uh, to be this sort of two-party us versus them system. I think, you know, out in the country, I I think people have felt a little more uh, pushed recently to declare because there's just been a lot of sort of high-profile type stuff where I think people have felt almost like a virtue signaling, like they've needed to declare to, to show where they are on certain issues. But I think in people's day-to-day lives, they don't want to feel like they need to self-identify every day as one member of a political party. So I, I agree with you. And I, you know, I don't know how we get past that. Um, you know, there's obviously, I think, a desire among millions of Americans to, to see a third party presidential candidate uh, be successful. I think for all of the reasons that it hasn't been before, it's going to be really, really difficult. Um, you know, one thing for all of the, in my uh, personal view, and I'm sure the view of many on this podcast or listeners, for all of the horrible things we endured uh, during the Trump years, one thing I found so interesting at the beginning when I look back to 2016 is that you actually don't have to go outside of the two-party system to be a disruptor. Trump did it from within the two-party system, and he got the nomination of his party uh, going against a lot of traditional party orthodoxy, which I didn't think was possible, and then reset the party in his image. That is, it was an incredible political development, and and it was for all of the wrong reasons, but if someone can replicate that uh, for good, and do it in a way that is in the national interest, I think that would be a really positive development. I don't, I don't know. You know, you look back, Bill Clinton was not a traditional Democrat. They, the Democrats had gotten killed three presidential elections in a row. The party said, we got to win this time. And he got nominated despite being not a traditional liberal. I hope that we're coming to a moment like that again uh, soon. Well, because I, think I would country- translate that, Patrick, into leaders matter. Yeah. And I, look, I tend to agree counter with you and Caitlin that we're not irreparably broken. I don't think any of us are saying, actually, we're all say, kind of saying the same thing. We're not broken beyond repair. But I think the only thing that can take us from where we are to a better place isn't a particular party it's a particular leader, somebody who gets the country, brings the country together, who can bridge the differences we face right now. And and I think that's an individual, not an ideology. Yeah. And I also think the one other thing I feel living, uh, you know, just again, in a community that isn't inside the beltway where politics is not discussed every single day. I also think we have to get back to a time that's really hard with like 
24 hour news. And like, we have to get back to a time where like, who is the president and who is in the majority on any given day is not a national obsession. Um, like politics is not meant to narrate every moment of our lives. It's meant to effectively lead the country, but like people's families and communities and uh, friends, that is what matters the most and should matter the most to people yeah. every day. And I'm just, I continue to be amazed by, and this this truly is a both sides thing, the, the vitriol that people feel toward the political opposition, the obsession with Trump won the last election or we have to get Biden out or, you know, we can't let Trump back in. It's that is no way to live. And I just think that our national, uh, you know, sort of cohesiveness is going to greatly benefit if people are able to turn off the television, get off Twitter and just live their lives yeah. amongst the people they love and care about. I don't think the majority of Americans want government running their lives. They don't want government in in their stuff. I don't care, Mark, whether it's you or Caitlin, whether it's you. Like People don't want government in their business. And that's kind of the ethos. That's part of the ethos of the United States of America. That's like who we are. And it's so... It's we've got to find we've got to make our way to a better place. Well, let me let me say this, Howard. First of all, it's 2022 and I support your ability to identify however you would like to identify. <laughs> thank and thank you. I just want you to know that that I feel that way for you. So that's number one. Number There's so two, much sarcasm in that, but go ahead. <laughs> number two is just for our listening audience. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I do support the right to identify however you would like to identify. I just, yeah, I do. Um, but anyway, uh, politically and otherwise. Uh, but the bottom line for me is I don't want to go back to the mid-60s through the mid-90s where Congress was Democratic supermajorities and Republican presidents only, and that was about how it went. You know, that was, sure, was that a period of stability? Absolutely it was. But you know what? We all have the ability to make choices. We are all informed voters now. We are not, you know, minions or drones for a political party. We can move back and forth between political parties. Political parties are changing. This is the sign of our times. This is the sign of the the speed of modern life in the 2000s. And I'm all for it. Things change all the time. We're more of a parliamentary system now, quite frankly, than we than we ever have been. Well, before. that's part of the tension. We're a parliamentary country at this point, living in a two-party system. That's exactly, I think, some of the tension that David Brooks was pointing out. Yes. We have our politics is parliamentary in a system of checks and balances that doesn't work. That's what that to your point, Howard, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's exactly no, that, the problem. You're, you're saying it better. Yeah. I think that that is the tension. But we also have seen a lot of power and decision-making devolved back to the States, which was the original intent, like whether it's Roe versus Wade being overturned or some of the environmental decisions we've seen, it's, it's a sort of a return to States in a lot of ways as well. And that's going to have lasting implications too. And it, yeah. you know, Part of the problem is that in a parliamentary system, um, we would, we might all be members of the same political party, 
or we'd be closer together than and and that's I mean I don't know whether we would be or we wouldn't be but the point is like the Washington focused crowd is closer is always closer together than people on the fringes um are to to people that identify with one political party or another it's it's very confusing well it's we're more like but, but also Howard you're you're talking uh, as the, I partially agree with everything you said you're talking <laughs> as though the parties are fixed and if you're one thing you're not the other neither party today is recognizable in historical terms if you just turn back the tape, this Republican Party looks nothing, nothing like the Republican Party that we grew up with, I a little longer than others, nor does this Democratic Party. In, in my early political involvement, the Democratic Party still owned the South. And that has been stood 100% on its head. Same with the Republican Party, uh, which was the party of civil rights yeah. when the Democratic Party owned the South. So yes, it's enormously frustrating to be categorized. You really only need to be one or the other when you pull the lever in the voting booth because that's well, but what else matters. But you don't even have to be. What else, what well, else matters? candidate, not party. What right. matters besides that, who, who you pull the lever for? And, that's what I'm saying. Uh, it's your yeah, point the, that you're voting for yeah. candidates. The, the, uh, the problem, though, Mark, is that I I don't think the majority of the country identifies with what either of these parties. The majority are. of the country doesn't participate in the political process. That's the greatest risk to our democracy. You cannot have a democracy where a majority of the electorate doesn't vote. And that's where we're headed. And that, to repeat myself, is why we shouldn't give anyone a driver's license unless they vote. Yeah, we also shouldn't give anybody a, a Facebook or Twitter subscription unless they vote. I'm all for that. <laughs> well, Twitter's going away now that Alan isn't buying it. Uh, <laughs> they're going away. Um, all right. Well, a vigorous discussion. Here we figured it all out yeah. on a on a summer Friday. I'm uh, going to get all my wig stuff out of a box somewhere, and we'll start a new party there. That's WH, right? Not WI. Yeah. It's Do you been, have a box of wigs? Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> That's a little scary. I can see it. I can see it. Uh, all right. Towner, Mark, Caitlin, Patrick, we will be back once more before our before our August recess. And it's great to be together, great discussion, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.